The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Well, good morning, everyone. If you brought your Bibles with you, which I hope you did, you can turn to Mark chapter 15, which is where we're going to be today in the second half of Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16. It, uh, it may be hard for you to believe, but when I was uh, that age, young, like these children that are walking out right now, I was, I was not very tall. And um, why are you laughing at me? Uh, I didn't have the build of a linebacker. I wasn't like some of you super athletes out there, but I, I was fiercely competitive and I absolutely loved the game of soccer. Still do. Anyone like soccer out there? Football, yeah, it's a, a great game. And as a kid, I was passionate about the game. And but it was difficult being one of nine children for my parents to prioritize uh, each one of us in our athletic pursuits. So what I did was I spent most of my young career playing with my older brother's teams. And so I'd go to practice with them. I'd watch their games, and any opportunity I could, I would get. Uh, I would play with the ball. So if the ball went out of bounds, I would, would sprint as fast as I could to get it so that at, at the very least when the ball was out of bounds, I would get some, some touches. And so this is what I would do. And, and so one Saturday, uh, like so many of you parents are familiar with, I was there at the field watching my brothers play in their game when suddenly the ball gets kicked out of the field and I take off sprinting after it. I'm going to be the first to the ball and it's heading toward the parking lot. And it's heading towards a, a very busy parking lot that's very full. And like I said, I was not very tall. So, so I'm running after the ball and it bounces and I start running between these two large SUVs or vans or probably they were just sedans, but I couldn't see over them to my right and my left. And so it's bouncing out in front of me and I've almost got it. I'm running between these cars and I can see it like in slow motion. I'm about to grab it as it's bouncing out from beyond the cars into the, the thoroughfare of the parking lot. Just as I'm about to get it, in my moment of triumph, I feel a sudden stop to my momentum. Some, someone, a strong hand, grabs my shoulder and I'm stopped in my tracks as that ball bouncing in front of me gets knocked by a truck pulling through the parking lot and uh, with no regard for what was in the way. I didn't know what had happened. I look back though and I see this 14-year-old kid, Tim Stanton, one of the, the teammates of my brothers, and he's standing there holding onto my shoulder. And in that moment, I realized that at the very least, he saved me from severe injury. And at worst, he saved me from getting absolutely crushed by that truck as I was speeding with full momentum toward it, unaware of what was coming out in front of me as I ran between those two vehicles to my left and my right. That day could have gone a lot differently. That day could have ended much differently. I could have been uh, injured terribly or worse. But thanks to the quick reaction of, of a kid who I, I didn't even see any of this happening, but he saw it developing and he ran after me and he saved me in that moment. And, and my trajectory as I was running forward was stopped suddenly, but that it was, then it was changed. And my, my life, or at least my health, was saved. The Word of God tells us that, that we are created for God, that He made us for Himself, for relationship with Him. But since the first man and woman, since Adam and Eve in the garden sinned against God and disobeying his commands and his statutes, humankind has lived in this, this fallen world where we, we deal with the effects of the curse of sin, a world characterized by sin and by death, the consequence of Adam's sin and ours, which by the way, we participate in. You know, it's, it's not hard to believe that we live in a sinful fallen world. After all, I saw a Dallas Cowboys jersey here today. That is a... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Greg. <laughs> I love you. 
uh, it is not hard. To, as we look around at the world, there's, there's a lot that would indicate to us that this world is not as it ought to be. And when we consider that, we actually can look internally and we can see that, that we are not as we ought to be. That in our hearts, there's all kinds of, of turmoil, all kinds of, of problems and what sin is described as in, in the Bible. It's described as this, this status we have. It says in Ephesians chapter two that we are dead in sin and trespasses. That's apart from Christ. Apart from his grace, we are dead in our sin and, tres and trespasses. Early church fathers like John Cassian, he described the death of sin as, as not just like a present status, but he also described it like a trajectory. This path that we're on apart from him stopping us and changing our direction, uh, an act of grace by God alone to save us from what is the, the just consequence of our sin. And so just like picture me drawing near to that ball as it's bouncing in front of me, unaware of, of what was coming for me, unable to stop my own momentum, we need intervention. We need a rescue. And what scripture is, is all about this, this great love story of the word of God, what we've been seeing in the gospel of Mark as we've been reading this af week after week is that God has made a way to rescue us. Jesus came fully God, fully man to rescue us and to restore us to relationship with him. Ephesians 2, 4 says it this way. It says, but God, I know some of you love this verse and rightfully so, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you get nothing else out of this sermon this morning, I hope you get a lot, but this is the main point. Why did God come on this rescue mission? Why did Jesus Christ be put on flesh and dwell among us and go to a cross for us? Why? Because of God's great love for us because of God's great love for you. Sometimes we hear that so often, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me, but we don't actually really believe it or we don't feel it. We don't grasp it deeply. And so this morning, as we, as we look at the crucifixion, I don't, I don't want us to just have eyes on the brutality of what our Lord suffered. Rather, I would, I would encourage you to set your eyes on the love of God for you while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That's the message. That's the why. He did this because he loves us. And now the how of our rescue, how he accomplished that rescue, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And this morning is going to be dark, but it is going to be good, good news. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 15. You might also look at Luke chapter 23, where we're going to draw out additional details. And to put this in context, Jesus, despite being full of love, despite ministering to people, those that are outcasts and the oppressed, despite pouring out his life for people, he has been betrayed, he's been arrested, he's been put through this mockery of a hearing where, where these holy men of Israel have beaten him mercilessly. They've handed him over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Jerusalem of Judea, and he, uh, unwilling or unable to stand up to this mob, has bowed to the pressures of the mob, and he has handed Jesus over first to flogging, and as we looked at last week, finally to execution, even though he knows that Jesus is innocent. I'm going to read verses 16 to 20 in Mark 15 right now to set this back in, in context. It says, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. They're mocking him. And when they had mocked him, 
They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Maybe you remember that old spiritual song that we sing sometimes around Easter. It's, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. And this morning, what I I invite us to do, for you to do, is I want you to not necessarily pay so much attention to filling out an outline, though I hope you have one in front of you, but rather to take your minds, your imaginations to this day in which our Lord was crucified. And we're going to look through the eyes of three people that were there on that day. Three people that saw Jesus on the cross. And what I want you to to attempt to, to do is to take on their eyes and see this event unfold. We're going to see three people in this passage and in the parallel passages. Three people. Number one, Simon. Number two, someone we'll call the sinner, a thief hung at the side of Jesus on the cross. And number three, a soldier, a soldier who saw Jesus' final moments. And I want you to see this passage as if you were there and in it to see the heart of God towards you, even on the darkest of days. If you can right now, put on the the sandals of of Simon. Simon of Cyrene, a man who uh, was no doubt a devout uh, Jewish man. And though he lived very far from Jerusalem, Cyrene is actually in modern day Libya in North Africa. He had been extremely eager to at least once in his life, or maybe, maybe this has been more than once in his life, to go to Jerusalem to be with his brethren, his kinsmen on Passover during this week of celebration. So what does Simon do? He saves and he plans and he travels hundreds of miles over rough terrain to arrive in Jerusalem. And he gets there on the last day before the high Sabbath, the day of preparation. It says in scripture that he is a passerby, that he has come in from out of the country. And so he comes into the city eager to see the sights, to take in the sounds, to to offer psalms of ascent as he walks up the hill toward the temple mount. This is a big deal for Simon. This is a, a big day. He's going to get to offer sacrifices not just sacrifices of atonement, but but sacrifices of worship to the Lord. He'll get to to spend time with distant relatives or friends or fellow worshipers in Jerusalem. This, This weekend, this is going to be one of the highlights of his religious life. This is a big deal. But on this particular Friday, right about lunchtime, as Simon is is making his way toward the temple, he notices great cries of commotion in the middle of the city. And so just like any of us would, uh, perhaps he's, he's curious what's going on here. And so he walks briskly to see what's going on. He maneuvers his way through great crowds to the front of the crowd, only to see Roman soldiers pushing back the crowd and a shackled criminal approaching, carrying a rough blood-stained beam on his back. The face of this prisoner is bloodied. It's unrecognizable, but based on the shouts, the curses, the spit coming from the crowds, he sees that this criminal must be exceptionally vile. Just as this prisoner steps into view, he stumbles, casting forward with a great crash onto the cobblestones right at Simon's feet. The criminal gasps for breath. Unable to brace his fall as he's carrying this beam, his face and his ribs are crushed into the pavement under the weight of this 100-pound beam on his back. Simon wants to look away. Simon in this moment, if he's like any of us, he's wondering, why am I here? What am I doing here on this day? Perhaps he wants to back into the crowd and disappear to get out of here. But before he can turn, he feels the flat of a Roman spearhead on his shoulder. He is pulled from the crowd and he is forced to carry the heavy timber, the remaining distance out of the city to the place of execution, Golgotha the place of the skull. It says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon, 
of Cyrene who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now picture the perspective of Simon as he is now walking through the crowds carrying the cross. He's a picture of, of our discipleship. Jesus says that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here we see this pictured in Simon as he is participating in this death march. He walks slowly behind Jesus, this bloodied criminal, and through the mocking jeers, the spit and the curses coming from the crowd, he also hears something else. He hears the voices of women weeping behind him, crying out with anguish the name Jesus. Jesus. He hears one voice, the voice of a woman crying out, my son, my son. He says, and there followed him a great multitude. This is Luke 23, 27. There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now suddenly Simon understands who this is. He can hear his name ringing out through the crowd. Could this really be though Jesus of Nazareth? This, this rabbi, this healer, this teacher who has become famous for his, his works of mercy. What has he done? How did he end up here? What has happened here? And why am I now part of a criminal's death march? As Simon observes, observes the back of the prisoner walking in front of him, what he sees through the clothing is pro profuse bleeding through the outer garment. He sees the neck and the legs of this man utterly ripped apart with deep lacerations. See, Jesus, though he was young, he was, he was likely in his mid-30s, early 30s at this time, he was strong. He lived a life in his early life of carpentry. He had walked all over the countryside. He was strong and youthful, but he had suffered immensely over the previous hours. Remember the garden, heavy and overwhelmed with stress. Jesus is utterly overwhelmed. He's weeping. He is sweating profusely like great drops of blood, so full of physical stress, knowing what awaits him under such duress that he is, is almost unable to stand. He is just crying out to his father, Father, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. He has suffered emotionally. He has suffered under great stress and duress. And then after that, he's sold out by a person that he loves. He's abandoned by his closest friends, people like Peter. He's been falsely accused, lied about, mocked, struck in the face, taken through a joke of a trial, handed over to unjust authorities. And despite Pilate being, uh, not seeing any guilt in him, he watches, Jesus watches as Pilate bows to the pressure of a mob and hands over an innocent man to be beaten first nearly to the point of death and then crucified. As Simon's looking at the back of Jesus, stumbling in front of him, he recognizes that Jesus has been flogged by Roman soldiers. And maybe he's seen this kind of brutality before, but, but if he's like any of us, he would have hoped to never see it this close. See, Jesus has been taken by soldiers, he's been tied to a post, and he's been whipped 39 times. Not with an ordinary whip, but with something called a cat of nine tails, uh, an instrument of torture with a stiff leather handle and, and nine leather whips, at the ends of which would contain bone and, and metal and stone that would tear into the flesh of its victims. Jesus was whipped in this way 39 times. He's bleeding profusely. He's torn down to the bone enough to, to leave his appearance marred. Isaiah 52 prophetically describes him this way. It says about the suffering servant, about Jesus his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Beaten beyond recognition, a, a mocking robe has been placed on his back, a crown of thorns pushed into his scalp. 
Those things are stripped away and then a heavy cross beam is strapped to his back and he's marched through the streets through an angry mob carrying the instrument of his own execution until he can carry it no more and collapses at the feet of Simon. So in this moment, Simon is conscripted into the darkest hour in human history. The darkest hour in human history. But here's what, here's what I love about God. One of the many things I love about God is that even in this moment, even in this darkness, God Almighty, his light is breaking through into that darkness. And even in this, this is the providential work of God to love Simon. For Simon to see and witness these last hours of the Son of God and, and for his life to be forever changed. I don't know what he saw in the bloodshot eyes of Jesus, if their eyes met. But I know that Simon's life would never be the same as a result of this encounter. I want to point out to you what you might see in verse 21. As Mark, the gospel writer, shares this account, he writes that Simon is the father of two boys. Two boys, Alexander and Rufus, which is an awesome name, by the way, Rufus. I recommend that if you're going to have a son. And what nearly all New Testament scholars agree on is that there would be no reason to name these names, Alexander and Rufus, unless they were known in the community to which Mark was writing, namely the church in Rome. Would they have been known in this community? That would be the only reason to write down their names. And here we have... In this verse, Rufus and Alexander. What we see here in Romans 16.3 is actually this. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, greet Rufus, as he's writing to the church in Rome, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, we don't know with 100% certainty that this is the very same Rufus, but scholars largely and generally agree that it is. And if it is, what we see is then that this interaction with Jesus this observation of Simon, of what Jesus has gone through, has changed his life, and not only his life, but the life of his family, his children, his wife. If this is the, the very same Rufus, then it says that generations are impacted. Not only that, but it says that Simon's wife was like a mother to the Apostle Paul. How cool is that? One of the greatest Christian servants of Christ to ever live. In Jesus' darkest hour, this is what I have no doubt he was doing for all those that were observing this. He was changing their hearts. He was loving those that were watching with his compassion, with his forgiveness. He was still transforming lives, even when hell thought it was winning, when it was nearing its, its moment of triumph. Jesus was still loving. He was still at work. Some of you need to know this right now. As life feels dark, hopeless, full of weakness, as you feel helpless, God is still strong. And God is still at work even in the darkest of circumstances. I know sometimes we can grasp that in the big picture. Somehow he's gonna work all things together for good, for the, the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But it is even more than that. Individually in your life, God is not far off. God is near to the brokenhearted. His light is, is here even now. He is at work even in our darkness redeeming individuals, changing lives forever. He's at work in your family. He's at work in your friendships. He's at work in your life. I love the old hymn. It says this, it says, though Satan should buffet. That means so he should beat against us. The trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Simon goes on to witness the last hours of Jesus' life as he rapidly succumbs to death by crucifixion. But Simon's life would never be the same. He came to Jerusalem to celebrate a Sabbath, and instead he found a Savior. 
He believed he was bearing the cross of a criminal, but instead he met the Christ who would make a way for salvation, who would bear his sins on the cross. I wonder if any of you this morning, you feel like Simon a little bit. Like, how did I get here? Why am I in this this church service? How did I get roped into all this? And I would submit to you that just like this encounter with Simon was not by chance, that in God's providence, he wants you to know that you are here for a reason. That he has you here for a reason. Just like Simon was called out of a crowd and his life was changed forever through an encounter with Christ, perhaps today is the day. Today is the day that Jesus is drawing you. He is calling you into a life-changing encounter with him. In the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your trial, when you feel helpless and hopeless, he has good news specifically for you. Would you follow him? Would you turn to him? Simon finishes his journey. He goes to the top of the hill. He casts down the beam. This cross beam he's been carrying gets affixed to another beam and Jesus is is stripped. He's laid out on this cross. His, His hands spread apart and he's held down His great nails are driven through his hands and his feet. He's raised up on that cross and the cross is dropped with sudden excruciating force, pulling on all the tendons in his shoulders and dropped into a hole in the ground. Mark 15, 23 says this. It says, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Remember, he told his disciples during that that first communion that he would not taste wine again until he tasted it anew in the kingdom. And so he refuses this. This would would have been like medicine. It would have been like an anesthetic to, to help him to suffer well through this, to numb some of the pain, and he refuses any of this numbing. He's going to take it all. He's going to drink the full cup of the Father's wrath against sin. He's going to take it on himself. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription and the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. I want you to know this, and and we revisit this every uh, Good Friday when we approach Easter, but crucifixion is one of the cruelest forms of execution. Jesus' back has been ripped to shreds. His hands and his feet have been pierced. Jesus will hang there for hours, barely above the eye level of mockers and scoffers who have come to witness his death. And as he hangs on that cross, covered in in blood, sweat, and tears, every ounce of his effort will be given to, to simply pulling himself up on the nails so that he can breathe so that he can catch his next breath. You see, in most cases, people who die from crucifixion don't die from the blood loss. They die from asphyxiation as they can no longer support their weight. With their arms suspended above them, their lungs begin to fill with fluid and they become weaker and weaker, unable to breathe. And eventually, sometimes after days, they succumb. They can support themselves no longer. They pass out and they die. Jesus, though, exhausted and brutalized as he was, he doesn't have days to live. He has hours. And here struggling next to Jesus are criminals, convicted of of horrid crimes, people like Barabbas who we looked at last week. But as they struggle in agony for their next breath, they can't help but notice Jesus and the way he suffers beside them. How does he spend his last breath? Listen to this. This is Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, this is of the crowds and of his crucifiers, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
This is amazing. Even in utter agony, Jesus uses his last breaths to pray forgiveness for his torturers. And one of the two criminals who are hanging beside him cannot shake what he is seeing in Jesus. Jesus is no ordinary man. This man is different. And I want you to now see from the perspective of the sinner hanging at the side of Jesus on this cross, a criminal crucified at Jesus' side. It says this in Mark 15, 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Luke 23, 39 gives us the, the detail. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But listen to this, the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. This man hanging at the side of Jesus, seeing the insults, the mockery, the, the curses hurled at Jesus, he, he turns to Jesus, perhaps tears streaming down his face as he considers what they've done to this innocent man hanging beside him. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus looks at this robber, this criminal hanging beside him. He sees him out of the corner of his eye and, and in all his unworthiness, Jesus looks at his belief and he has compassion on him. He says, when I go into my kingdom, you're coming with me. You'll be with me. Maybe you believe that it's too late for you to turn to Jesus, that, that, that maybe you tried to at some point or you tried to get your life together at some point, but that you've done too much. You've strayed too far. It's, it's too late for you. But the words of Jesus to this thief are the same to any of you who would simply believe. It is never too late for you to turn to Christ for salvation. While there's still breath in your lungs, it is not too late for you to receive salvation. But why wait? What are you waiting for? Life with Christ, life with God, eternal life, resurrection life, which we'll look at next week, it begins now as we turn to him and it lasts for eternity. Perhaps today is the day you simply turn your head to the innocent Jesus, offering nothing of your own righteousness and you acknowledge your unworthiness and receive his forgiveness, his compassion toward you. He has enough for you. He has grace enough for you. Would you acknowledge your need of him? Would you receive his mercy toward you? At last, we're going to see the perspective of the soldier. There's a commander here, the commander of this Roman execution squad. And every day what he does is, is he takes criminals out to this hillside and he executes them. And he's good at his job. Day after day, he would, would take these criminals and he would deal with them. Day after day, he does his job with discipline and excellence. And his job is simple, end the life of criminals. But on this day, he has ordered nails to be driven through the hands of a man who is seemingly different from anyone he's ever seen before. It says this, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is actually a psalm. He's, he's singing out, shouting out the words of a psalm that show that even in this, this feeling of utter forsakenness that God has not forsaken his beloved. But here he's crying out and they hear this word Eloi and it sounds like the name Elijah. They don't understand what he's saying and, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. It says elsewhere that, that his cry was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, this, this commander of this execution squad, when he saw it, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Luke 23, 48 says, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. They're ashamed. They're in anguish over what they've just been a part of, over what they've just witnessed. And it says all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So picture it, even though it's midday, the sky becomes like night full of black and red clouds. The ground begins to shake the hilltop as, as Jesus, rather than crying out in agony, he lifts up his voice to the heavens and he speaks to his father before letting out his final breath. It is finished. And then, then he dies, like a child falling asleep in his father's arms. No one can speak. Even the mockers are held silent, beating their breasts in anguish over what they've just been a part of. And deeply moved, this hardened Roman soldier, this centurion, seeing how Jesus has died with forgiveness towards his killers, with courage and with purpose in his eyes, he knows that he has just overseen the execution of the Son of God. And yet what it says in Luke's gospel is that he praises God for what he's just seen. He praises God. It seems like a, a strange response, doesn't it? But let me tell you, when we behold what Christ has done, what he has done for us, we cannot help but praise him. When we grasp the grace that he has demonstrated for us, when we grasp, not just demonstrated, but given to us, we can't help but praise him. There's a debt to be paid for sin. And Jesus has paid that debt in full on the cross. Jesus died to pay our debt and he paid it in full on the cross. See, it wasn't some Roman soldiers that killed Jesus. Jesus went willingly, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, he went willingly to that cross because of our sin. It was our sin that held him there on that cross. Our sin is the reason that Jesus had to suffer and die. But the beauty of the gospel is that he was willing to suffer all of this because that's what our sin merited. No, even more than that, because he loves us, because he loves you. This is how deeply he loves you, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He loves you so much. He loves you so much that he was willing to take the full fury of sin's consequences on himself. In our sin, we are separated from God. And Jesus came to reconcile us to God, being willing to die to accomplish all that is necessary. And so this, this is what this means. There is nothing left for you to do. 
Simply believe. Simply turn to him. He has taken your place. And in, in, in return, he offers you his righteousness and eternal life. This is the amazing love of God, isn't it? And, and this kind of love, it requires a response from us. And so what we're going to do is a little bit different this morning in response. We will always end our service with praise and with a response of praise to the Lord. But this morning, before we all stand and sing together, Moises and Hugo will come up and they're going to, to just simply play a song. And as they do, I'm going to play a video. And on that video, it's, it's simply going to be full of, of scriptures that tell clearly what the word of God says about his love for you. This is the, the, the main point today is that God loves you deeply, desperately, so much that he would send his son. Some of you don't know God as father. You know him as far off and distant. You know him as, as some kind of force out there and now he is so much more than that. And so right now I just invite you to enjoy some music and turn your attention to the screens as we reflect on his love for us.